to episode 92 of the Retrospectors podcast, Fire Emblem Path of Radiance. My name is Patrick Arthur and I'm joined as always by my co-host James Turlings. James, I know that a Fire Emblem game has been on the cards for a long time. Uh, what is it that led you to pick this game and why this one in particular? Well, I played, you know, a bunch of these games before. I finished um, Awakening on my 3DS years ago when I was younger. Um, I had a neighbor come around with a big bag of ROMs and I had like all of the GBA Fire Emblem games, you know, on my computer when I was in middle school. Um, so I played a bunch of them and quite enjoyed most of them. Um, and I kind of had a few recommendations here or there or requests for this from a few different people. So I thought, you know, may as well give it a go. Um, I chose Path of Radiance specifically. Um, I spent a long time browsing forums and asking people about which their favorite was, and it was pretty consistently um, this one. So, you know, my choice was either to go with this one or one of the Game Boy Advance games, which I, you know, love to bits, especially the, uh, the battle animations, I think are just the best thing ever. Um, but I wanted to try one we hadn't done before, and you know, playing on the GameCube, always, always easy. Yeah, so this is the first Fire Emblem game I've given a proper crack. Uh, I did play a bit of Awakening, uh, but I was very confused and quit early. I was reading online with Awakening, everyone's like, you have to play on the hardest difficulty mode because it becomes a face roll later on. But then I played on the hardest difficulty mode and my guys would just die to a crit in one, <laughs> in one, in one hit. hit? Yeah. And I was like, is this meant to be fun gameplay? Like, I'm so confused. So I... I I ended up stopping playing after I was only like two or three missions in because I kept having to reset the mission over and over again and it felt like I was rolling for a situation where I did not get crit. I didn't have quite the uh, same experience with this on hard mode. It was a bit more balanced. Random crits and permanent character death, name a more iconic duo, right? <laughs> like to this day, I think that the, uh, the system of losing your characters permanently to a crit is just kind of bullshit. Yeah, and I think this is something that's definitely going to come up in our gameplay <laughs> discussion later because permanent character death is is a feature of this game compared to something like XCOM where characters, firstly, when they get killed, they get wounded and you can revive them, but they can also suffer trauma and injuries, which you then have to basically take them off the battlefield for a while. Same with fatigue. Fire Emblem has none of those systems as far as I can tell. It's they die or they don't. So mm. it adds a, a tremendous amount of tension and punishment to a game that isn't necessarily that way in every other regard but there'll be plenty of time to talk about that later when we get more into the episode yeah and of course we recently did like gorky 17 and that was another part of my motivation for picking this one we did a mm. tactics game recently and i wanted to pick a game series that i was familiar with you know so we could compare and contrast it to uh, we won't do too much of that on this episode because i don't want to bog it down but these kinds of games were on my mind about around the time I picked this many weeks ago now. So we'll get into more of the show later, but we do have one other uh, topic of news, I guess, if you want to call it. James, you appeared on another podcast, didn't you? Yeah, so I guessed it on Dos Kane Club's episode of Little Big Adventure, which was a game I played through a few months ago now. Um, for that um, and it was a pretty fun episode. We had a bunch of cool guests, um, you know, the host of a fan site for the game um which was awesome because i didn't think that the games community was huge 
Um, and it's ended up being a cool little game where I'm personally not a big fan of the gameplay, <laughs> but it's got a, like this undeniable charm to it that's hard to resist. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for me to tell other people to play it, but I don't regret playing the game. And it was a lot of fun discussing it on their show, um, which, you know, it takes a bit more of a relaxed, more of a you know, a uh, discussion about these games. They're, they're a lot more into, you know, celebrating the game and its history, that kind of thing, whereas we love being critical uh, <laughs> and really, you know, laying into someone's. <laughs> um, so that was fun. I didn't, the, the, once the episode's out, I'll put a link to that on the website. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's quite funny. It's a game that I played when I was a kid. I don't remember too much about it, and I picked it because of my memories. And after talking to you, talk about your experiences, I consider myself lucky <laughs> that I didn't have to play. Oh yeah, you would have I, hated I, it. <laughs> I, I think I would have ended up hating it a lot more than you did, and probably wouldn't have seen the charm that you that you saw. So I'm glad I went and did Duke 3D with Retro Hangover instead. <laughs> Definitely uh-huh. <laughs> a better fit to uh, to my sensibilities. So yeah, look out for that episode. It'll either be out by the time our episode drops or very shortly afterwards. So, for those who have never listened to us before, uh, James and I make up the Retrospectors podcast. Basically, what we do each and every fortnight is we play a classic game of the past with the intention of reviewing and discussing it from a modern perspective. This is not a nostalgia podcast. We are not here to celebrate the history of Fire Emblem Path of Radiance. We're here to evaluate it and critique it as if the game had just released today. It's a very strict standard of critique, and we're well aware of that, but it just means that when we think a game is good, it means that we think it's really good, and we think that it stands up and alongside the games that get released every single day. So just a quick bit of background info about Fire Emblem Path of Radiance. Uh, So this game was released for the Nintendo GameCube in 2005. I'm not sure which title it is in the Fire Emblem history, Fire Emblem history. It's probably like the seventh or something, right, James? There are a lot of these games. Pretty the sure game it's version. nine. Yeah, nine. And and there were many games that came after it. The most recent Fire Emblem game that people may be familiar with is Fire Emblem Three Houses, which came out on the Switch. But needless to say, this this series has a long and varied history. The GameCube version was probably most notable for being the first three D game you know with 3d graphics and cutscenes and stuff like that but otherwise it mostly follows the same formula of all the other ones so these games are tactics rpgs so you basically have two main kind of strands of gameplay you've got your tactic system where your units are on a map which is uh, divided up as part of a square based grid And then you've got a bunch of RPG elements that feed into that tactics screen. You have characters that gain levels and get stronger. You select different items for your units. Uh, Those units can gain special abilities and you can change those abilities out. And there's a lot of uh, character customization and interaction over the course of your tactical journey through this game. So tactics rpg is an app description those two main things are the things that feed into this and we'll get into more detail on that as we approach those elements but that's just the basic idea it's similar to gorky 17 in some regards in 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 that way but the instead of controlling just three characters you more control 10 to 15 at a time and you'll often have a roster of upwards of 50 so there's a lot more variability and customization in your in your squad over these quite long games so James, I think the best place to start with this game, now that we've given a brief overview, is probably with the story of Fire Emblem. 
So Fire Emblem Path of Radiance uh, is about a protagonist called Ike. Ike is the son of someone called Grail, and they are part of a mercenary company. And when the game starts, he's a new recruit to this mercenary company. They're in a land called Crimium, and pretty close to the start of the game, a war breaks out with uh, the neighboring kingdom, Dayan. I'm probably butchering these pronunciations, by the way. It's all text on the screen, so I kind of have to guess at how these words sound. So the neighboring kingdom of Dane invades Crimea, and basically Ike and the mercenaries, they have to retreat from this advancing army. Along the way, they pick up the princess of Crimea, and they have to fall back, fall out of the country, kind of regroup and come up with a plan to try and get the princess back on the throne. So it's very much, they get attacked, they fall back, and they have to, have to regroup. We talked about this before the show. There's going to be some spoilers for the plot. We want to avoid some of the twists and turns and intricate details of the story, but in order to talk about the plot holistically, uh, in a, it's going to require us to jump into some of the major story beats. Um, so we'll avoid specifics, but be warned, if you want to play this game completely spoiler-free, completely fresh of mind, I recommend you just skip to the gameplay section. However, for most people, I believe that our broad stroke discussion of the plot will probably be acceptable. Yeah, so no avoiding spoilers entirely, um, but we will avoid the major ones. Um, so, Pat, the first thing that struck out to me on this game is that we don't do a heap of long games on this show. Mm. Um, generally, you know, our time constraints leave us playing games at about the 15 hour mark. Um, this one clocks in at about 30 and it tries to tell, I think, of a larger scale story than we're used to talking about on this show that has a very clear, you know, beginning, mid game and end with a whole bunch of smaller story arcs, um, that happen, you know, in the lead up to the final confrontation at the end. Um, for me, I think that overall, most of the overarching narrative worked quite well. I think that they uh, had a pretty clear direction they wanted to take the game in. And so I felt like from a beginning to end, I thought that the end may was a bit weaker, but for the first like 80% of the game, this kind of overarching narrative where your characters go on this journey all around a giant continent worked really well for me. I think that structurally this game basically worked really well, I'd say for like the first two thirds. Um, Neighbouring Kingdom Invades, great. We're part of a mercenary company. The mercenary company decides to assist the, um, the retreating princess, great. You, so you fall back and you kind of swing around into another neighbouring kingdom who's basically neutral with you. And it introduces this plot thread of uh, these things called Lagoos or Lagoos, which are basically beasts that can you know transform into people and vice versa and you kind of get introduced to this history of racism uh between the humans and these lagas and as this was all was happening i was like man this is quite interesting because not only do we have this more mundane factional conflict going on we've also got this history of racial tension between uh between humans and non-humans uh simmering in the background and probably influencing a lot of the events in the game and i'd say the first half of the game structurally is very is very well done as it gradually builds up those two elements and kind of starts fusing them together i think that around the time you start invading uh dayen like once you've regrouped gathered an army and start coming coming back together 
the game starts to de-emphasize those racism threads. And in a lot of ways, it starts to de-emphasize the factional conflict making sense in favor of focusing on the titular Fire Emblem. Yeah, I think um, they're kind of setting up the structure as almost having... I, don't, I wouldn't use the word mystery, but I would say there's a lot of ingredients in the pot to the point where it's not particularly clear what's happening at any given moment. Like, there's a lot of confusing information um, that leads to, you know, there's a whole bunch of factions that are all have these different relationships to each other. You know, it's not this clear-cut, you know, good guys versus bad guys kind of story to begin with. Um, and I think as the, the game goes on and more and more plot relevations happen, um, a lot of these elements are simplified and explained, and then you kind of are left with a fairly straightforward, you know, you know, good versus evil thing right at the end. Um, and I'm conflicted about this because it is for sure less interesting at the end because of that, but I think they do have to, you know, progress the plot by you know, bit by bit taking all this apart and deconstructing it. Um, I'm just not sure that they did it in the best possible way. I would say that the main problem probably um, is that I don't think the villain is particularly, you know, well constructed. Um, so yeah, for me, I kind of agree with you that the end half is the weakest part of the game, but part of me does think it kind of had to be that way at the same time. One of the things I like about this game, and <laughs> I've had people just say that this is my personal preferences, but one of the things that distinguishes this from a traditional JRPG is that it is a military fantasy story. Uh, you are not a band of children going on an adventure where friendship is magic. You are the leader of a mercenary company in the midst of many militaries fighting one another. And I just want to say that this kind of story where the military is a large focus just makes a lot more sense to me than one where you have three or four people who are just stronger than literally everyone else in the world fighting monsters in caves. <laughs> Having battles on battlefields between these forces, it, it resonates with me a lot more. And I think that there are a couple of things that are kind of hand waved away but which ultimately didn't bother me because at least there were acknowledgements uh, of of these things making sense and the big example i have for that is when uh basically at at the early stages of the game ike takes control of the mercenary company he goes from being a brand new recruit at the very beginning of the game in mission one and by mission seven or eight, he's in charge of the mercenary company. Now, on face value, this is ridiculous. You wouldn't have a lowly mercenary who's just begun, who's a child, take control of an entire company. It doesn't make sense. However, the game does acknowledge this to some degree by having two of your experienced soldiers leave the squad at the time this happens. And I can understand that they wanted to tell a story of someone being inexperienced and new having to rise to the challenge of leading a mercenary company. And outside of the game lasting five years game time, this was the only way to do it. And I think that the game is very intelligent in doing this in a lot of instances. It, in some ways, it doesn't make sense. It's, it uses a lot of shortcuts, things which I'd normally criticize. But the very fact that it 
it acknowledges these things. The fact that Ike is inexperienced, for example, is enough for me to become immersed in the fantasy and the realism of this world. Yeah, I think one of the strengths of the writing is that there are many occasions throughout the game where it shows a surprising amount of self-awareness like this. Um, mm. Another example that I would point to is that later on in the game, you go to this big ritzy capital city that has, you know, priests and princesses and like all of these rich folk and they play their, you know, rich folk games with Ike and the mercenary company. And there is this one instance where like it's particularly bad. And instead of just like taking it, like I feel like a lot of main characters would, Ike just completely loses his shit about this and gets furious. Um, and I was like so glad that shit happened rather than it just being, you know, hand waved away. There's like you know, it doesn't, stuff like this doesn't happen all the time, but it happens, like, quite often and enough that, you know, whenever it, it seems like it's going to be very generically tropey in a lot of ways, they do end up surprising you with characters who, you know, say and act things that make surprising amounts of sense sometimes. Yeah, so I would say overall, like, from a structural point of view, I think that this game's world building actually works pretty well on a when we look at the big picture i think when we start delving into the details and i think in terms of it tying it all together successfully with a good ending that's where this story fails from a big picture point of view so but it was i would say like as a story this is far better than any jrpg i've played i i was was on board uh for most of it yeah and the world building i did want to talk about too actually um mm. you mentioned it because there are you know you end up traveling around the entire country and i thought they did a pretty good job of showing you the world right like they reflect this in you know the conversations and the cutscenes and you know, even the battles and the battlefields change as you move around the continent. The world of Fire Emblem, it's not like a super exaggerated fantasy setting where you're going around like the ice mountain and the fireplace, you know what I mean? But the places did feel distinct with their own customs and stuff like that. One of my particular favorites story-wise in the game was when they run aground on their ship and, you know, in this neighboring nation and the people there just help them and they have these little discussions between them and that's it. It's just a bit of a bit of world building between the Grail mercenaries and, you know, the Laguz dragons who up until that point have been a big mystery. And there's a couple of bits of foreshadowing in that scene, which makes it probably my favorite in the game. Um, one of my favorite moments in the story is probably when the Apostle of Benyon, which is the big, mega, super powerful country, falls to her knees um, and apologizes for something that her family and country did. And this moment has particular emphasis, like it hits home particularly hard because up until this point, she's been shown as very you know she she it's a very traditional almost chinese kind of uh type of aristocracy where the leader is literally uh godly so for her to fall to her knees and abjectly apologize to someone carries a lot more weight and meaning than it would have as if if she just decided to do it and i thought that that moment hit home and felt authentic and the consequences of it were believable because of everything that had built up to that point yeah you know, like, I found it pretty enjoyable from start to beginning, um, from start to mostly middle. near the end. Yeah. <laughs> it's not middle, middle, it's a bit more than middle. I think I liked probably 
up until they had taken the spoilers um up until they took Dayan's capital and then after that I felt like there was a big sharp drop off when they start introducing this new plot element that kind of uh somewhat undoes you know um the rest of the plot but you know up until then I was pretty happy were you dissatisfied by the fact that the relationships between humans and lagoos it felt like that was a plot thread that never properly unraveled like it just kind of sorted itself out in a lot of ways yeah it's funny because i think a large part of the mid game especially around the forest and in Banyon, um does center around resolving some of the misgivings between the races and i thought it only partially did this um I'm not sure if they were supposed to entirely solve everything. Um, it just seemed, it seemed to me like the story was about, I guess, that the first step forward is the most important, right? Like, it matters mm. that you try, um, even if it's hard and there's, hundred, there's years of history that you need to work through. That is true. Yeah, the, 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 the goodwill is what is, is what, what allows these those things to, to, to carry on yeah and so i wasn't too annoyed about the way all that rolled i guess i thought that was going to be the center of the story yeah. when they start introducing it i'm like okay this is interesting we're actually getting somewhere and then it kind of just fades into mist by the end of the game <laughs> i agree with that um i i do wonder if the because there's a direct sequel to this game um i wonder if that's more prominent there as well but you know I don't know. And what, what what were we saying before the show? We, I have a suspicion that they wrote this story before the Fire Emblem, which is yeah. the key thing that's probably part of all these games. Games I don't really know, but I assume there is literally a an emblem in each game, which is a Fire Emblem. I, it's almost like you could take that Fire Emblem out and there would have been a more cohesive and interesting story lurking there, but they had to shove it into the story somehow. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a Fire Emblem game. Yeah, and when and when they do bring it in, it does kind of make the whole plot, like, warp itself around its inclusion, um, and yep. suddenly all these, you know... It's all that matters, right? Yeah, and all the interesting factional lines and conflicts start, you know, fading to mist in the, um, the face of this thing. I kind of would have rather they just focused on you know tying all of the threads together um and to me like the big big problem I get we have to talk about it now right like the big problem of the story for me is the villain who I think is just massively lackluster and underwritten because he basically just boils down to being this power hungry dude it's worse than that he, he's not it's not even that he's power hungry it's that because he makes irrational decisions that that detract from his kingdom's power. What was it you you're talking about? You're saying he was like Senator Armstrong, but bad. Okay, so for ninety percent of the game, Ashnard, you know, the villain is called Mad King Ashnard, and he makes crazy decisions. Like he just near the end of the game, when you're taking his capital, he just leaves it to fall. Like he doesn't care about his own country. He invades and attacks countries seemingly randomly, and my big problem is that there is actually an interesting character here buried under maybe cut content, maybe poor writing, but right at the end of the game, there is an optional conversation that you can have with him in the final battle with one of your units that you would literally never, like, that basically has zero attack, 
you you have to send him in to attack you know the big bad to get this conversation and Ashnard basically states that he hates the current ruling class system of Banyon, the main, you know, the huge country in the middle of the continent. He thinks that it's bullshit, um, that people rise to power based on their birth. He wants to, he wants to, th you know, he wants to bring down the monarchy and create class revolution where only the strong survive, right? He's a social Darwinist who wants to implement some kind of flawed meritocracy. And to me, you know, I'm all for a villain being like this, right? Like throwing down um, the bullshit class structure is something that can be great, you know, in games. And we have something like that with Senator Armstrong in Metal Gear Rising. Um, you know, he wants to tear down America because it's sick to the core and he wants to, you know, have the strong, hardworking individuals be the ones who, you know, win. But Ashnard is too selfish for him to cut because Armstrong has like. His view is twisted, but he's not, like, mustache-twirling evil. Like, his goal isn't to take over the world. His goal is to improve the social hierarchy to a point. Ashnard is just, you know, evil and selfish and power-hungry. And they don't play on these themes enough throughout the game up until this point for it to be good. Like, I am super behind all of this, but you can totally miss this one conversation and you ha would have no idea that he's nothing more than an evil guy who wants to rule the world. Um, and it annoys me because one of the, you know, the plot threads that you mentioned, Patrick, early on, which is really good, um, was that point where Ike takes over the Grail mercenaries and then through sheer, like, nepotism basically rises to be their leader and a bunch of characters leave and say that that's bullshit because, you know what, it is. Um, and then later on in the game, Ike goes to Banyon and he has these conversations with his allies and he says, it is kind of bullshit that people rise to power through their birth, you know, in this real hypocritical moment of, you know, Ike, <laughs> you know, and I was annoyed that the characters didn't call him out on this when he said it, but, you know, he's exactly the same, right? And so they had this opportunity in the final battle for Ike and Ashnard to go against each other and Ashnard to point out Ike's hypocrisy and to say, like, I'm just trying to, you know, upend this unfair bullshit class hierarchy, you know, look at yours, and then Ike to rebut him, and then Ashnard to point out Ike's hypocrisy in response. And you could have the main character's, like, character arc really challenged by the villain here. And I think basically every good villain ever is one that challenges the main character in a good way. And, you know, they just completely fail to do this, right? Like, they could bring the whole racism thing into and say, look, the, you know, the hypocrisy and classism of Banyon is causing all this, you know, uh, discrimination to happen. Wouldn't it be the world be better if we got rid of that all? And then, sure, you can have him be flawed and have this, like, weird social Darwinist meritocracy view, but anything like that would be better than what we got at the end. Well, what I thought they were going to do with the racism thing was say that I thought it was going to be Dane's whole thing was that humanity needs to protect humanity. If we don't band together and take out the Lagoos, then they're going to take us out. So this whole attack is the beginning of a master plan to wipe out this other race because if it's either us or them. And obviously that's a very misguided point of view and one that 
uh, Ike and his forces should righteously be fighting against. But it's an ethos. It's a, it's a plan that you can understand a villain would have. The villains in this game, as you said, have a serious problem of being mustache twirling, evil for the sake of evil people. And I think that that was a problem because I'm all for a story where you have bad guys and good guys, but the bad guys should have a have a reason to be. They should they should have a reason that they're invading and doing these things. And the fact that he was just he makes irrational decisions to weaken his army the fact that he doesn't care about his capital the fact that he seems to care about nobody but himself is absolutely bizarre and i don't i don't really buy this social darwinism thing because the fact of the matter is if he wanted to upend the social structure he has achieved the exact fucking opposite yeah In, he's basically had this massive army very strong army and what has he done over the past year that this game takes place in that army is gone what do you think benyon has has had its army reduced you've you've hurt crimea who's to the west of you you basically crashed each other's armies into one another and weakened them dramatically benyon is perfectly poised the Luguz armies are perfectly poised to attack and take over your country that is what you have achieved so it annoys me James, not so much that he has this perspective of social Darwinism. I actually love that that perspective, the idea that revolution must come. It's that his actions do not make sense and are not congruent with that perspective. Yeah, I think some of his do. Like, what you're saying, basically, it's like he has destroyed the structure of his own country and one other yeah. and then solidified the power of another which kind of which is the country yeah. that he has the biggest problems with yeah but there are things like there are scenes where you see him with his advisors and they're saying we need to defend the country or like you need to get out of here and he's like like even in the final battle um his advisors are telling him to leave and he's like no, if I die, then I wasn't strong enough. Like, he is very, very strongly in favour of the... Yeah, the, the strong... <laughs> like, that might is right, basically. But at the end of the day, if you're one person, just... You cannot, for, you cannot survive against an army. At the uh, start of could. the game... <laughs> I don't know, man. I reckon if he's up against 100 people, eventually he's going to die. Uh. Like... You you don't think they can like pin him down and then get a get a knife under his armor? Easy. Uh, probably, yeah. But it's gonna happen. Like one person, mechanically, no the um the game <laughs> mechanics kind of support this to some. Yeah, and I'm not a huge fan of the way the final battle works, but it does like fit in with. You know, the chose he's super strong, right? But but the end of the day, one person cannot fight off an army. Like yeah. that's just how how if if we want to say this game has an element of realism, and I think that for the most part it kind of does, and that's why I like it. I like this military structure, not the JRPG structure of one dude just being able to kill everyone and everything. You need to have supporting military forces, and your forces are. Your forces' strength are diversified, you know, around hundreds of units, not just not just four. We have to accept that if he's by himself and literally his entire army is dead or defected, <laughs> that he cannot achieve his plans. And he has achieved the opposite of what his plans were supposedly meant to do. I, I really hate this villain and I hate the ending of this game because I feel like you can't have a compelling military conflict if what the if what the bad guys are doing makes zero sense. I yeah, really irritated by this, James, and I think I'm all the more irritated 
by the fact that the game had such a strong start. Yeah, and all the ingredients are kind of there for them to do something interesting with him. They just do not. Um, and to me, that is, you know, he's the single worst part of the narrative um, of the game's story by far. Like, he does some, you know, theatrical entertaining things occasionally, um, not very often. Uh, it's just, yeah, the big disappointment. Um, so while we're talking about characters, I want to go back and I want to talk a bit more about Ike too, because I actually think uh, he ended up being my favorite character by a fair bit. You know, he does get the most, you know, by being virtue of the main character, he does get the most time. But one thing that I really did like about Ike is that he kind of has this like virtue to him without being like unbelievably ridiculously naive. Like he is at the start, um, and then there are times where like other characters point out that he's being an idiot, and he's like, "Yeah, you're right." Like in the capital, or you know, these yeah, other Soren, things. his interactions with Soren are great. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like those as well. So uh, I like that he's like he's a flawed character. He gets angry easily. He's like hot-headed. He's not you know a big fan of details and the. You know, they go through this when he takes over the mercenary company and has to have them teach him accounting, basically, and he struggles with it a lot, that kind of thing. Um, I think he ends up being, like, a likable protagonist that has, you know, kind of virtuous motivations without being, like, unrelentingly sunny and cheerful and, you know, without flaws. Yeah, he's he's not bad. I kind of... I, I don't really like characters of this mold. I don't think there's anything wrong with this character, but he's kind of he kind of makes me want to puke in terms of how he's just a goody he's a goody person that everyone loves and respects. Not really my cup of tea. I prefer my characters to have, to be a bit more experienced, I guess. They've got a bit more years on them. And I said before that while I accept the hand wave that Ike is in charge of this mercenary company, is this general when he's still inexperienced? it doesn't quite fit the character for a general to be like Ike is. I felt that later on in the game, once he becomes an actual general, not just of a mercenary company, mm. um, by then I could buy it. Um, he had been in a lot of battles, you know, done a lot of crazy things. And by then, mm. like, even his attitude and, like, the way he, he seems, like, worn down at this point, he's like... Uh, less, I guess, abrasive at this point in the game. I think the way he talks is more understated. Um, he just seems older and more experienced by the time he gets command of the bigger army. And I felt that that narrative arc was done fairly well, at least a lot more smoothly than at the start. I just want to make it clear. I don't have any beef with his character, and I think he has a good arc. I just personally, I'm not a big fan of this kind of character and i think that i would enjoy this story more if the person in charge of the mercenary company was a 50 year old veteran and mm -hmm. not a you know i don't know how old he is a 16 like 17 or 17 year old kid. yeah yeah that story element still i accept it but it doesn't work for me in the same way uh, most of the time you need to be older and with a degree of experience to be a general um but it's fine. Like, I, I, really, I really don't have a problem with it, but I don't love it as much as you do. Mm -hmm. So I guess we'll go to a music break now, and then did you want to talk a bit more about characters or...? Yeah, that sounds good, because 
I I do have more to say about the characters and all of the character interactions, particularly in their conversations that they have on the base. All right, let's go to a music break. And spoilers, Patrick doesn't have much opinion on the music this time around, so I'm going to do a bit of the heavy lifting here. Well, um, let's talk about why. Let's talk about okay, why. Sure. So the thing about this game is that it is painfully slow. Painfully slow. Your group of 15 troops is fighting 30, and you have to watch for all of them to move. Every time one of them fights them, it plays this battle scene, and there's just so many units to move on both sides. So I watched, or I saw the video of like this game playing at normal speed, and I think the final battle was like an hour and 40 minutes playing at normal speed. Yep. Luckily, we don't need to play the game at normal speed because we're playing on an emulator. So I played with this game speeds to that set to 300% and everything moved instantly and quickly and I was all the happier for it. The unfortunate thing is that if you have the game playing at 300% speed, the music doesn't sound too good. So unfortunately for this game, for the most of the time I spent playing it, I had the, I had the volume muted. Because having it spaz out at 300% speed was not a pleasant experience. What's more, I would argue that this is the superior way to engage with this game. I think if you're going to play this game today, waiting for all these animations is utterly ridiculous and a waste of anyone's time. And I probably would have rage quit the game if I was forced to play this game at normal speed. So I think listening to this game without music, because you can't listen to the music at normal speed and with the you know, with how it works, is probably the best way to do it. So unfortunately, I didn't listen to the music, but I genuinely do think that for most people who would engage with this game today, that that's how you should engage with it. Yeah, and I want to echo this sentiment and say that this isn't just Patrick being impatient. This game <laughs> is legitimately, like, unbearably slow. And, you know, I've seen this echoed online, like, I've seen lots of people share this, like... If you turn the battle animations off in the menu and you put it to max speed, it is still like unbearably slow mm -hmm. um, in these battles that have like 40 units. It will take you forever to do a battle. And if you fuck up majorly and have to do the battle again from the beginning at that speed, it's like you lose like an hour and a half of your life to just watching the animations slowly play out. It's insane. And you have All to remember... So we haven't really gone into this, but you have units that can die in one hit for the yeah. majority of this game. Like, yeah. you just do. <laughs> and so that'll happen all the time. Um, so, like, all the newer games have speed-up options that surpass this one, um, and even their animations aren't as long. This game is like molasses. It is so slow. I also played on 300, 400 times speed and felt that that was, like, what the base speed should have been it's really <laughs> bad like it's an absolute massive mark against the game um and i would you know strongly also recommend everyone playing on a speed sped up version of this because it's just really unacceptable um but you know i did actually slow the game down to listen to the music fairly often um, this game has an absolutely massive soundtrack, actually. It's got like 64 songs on the soundtrack, um, and a lot of it plays during, you know, conversations even, so there'll be a conversation happening, and, you know, depending on the tone of the conversation, the music will switch quite often, often multiple times a minute, 
in order to, you know, convey what's going on, you know, and even before the battle, there's often a bunch of we're under threat type music, followed by the strategic planning music, followed by a battle theme that, you know, changes pretty often throughout the story. Now, my big criticism is that compounding my issues with the end of the game, the last few battles use the same track for every single battle, which makes it feel very samey and monotonous when I already have misgivings with the story. Um, but overall, I really like the soundtrack. It's very big and bombastic. It's got a lot of, you know, we got a lot of horns and military drums in the background. It fits very well with the theme. Um, a lot of energy. It's got a lot of energy behind it. And some of the tracks are genuinely excellent. Um, I would say my, you know, other than, you know, the, the end of the game, the only other thing I can say about the track is that sometimes some of the audio feels a bit low quality, but that's what you get when, you know, you're going back this far. I did listen to the sound, the OST for the new the game after this, Radiant Dawn, and the recording quality or even the MIDI samples are just so much higher, strangely enough. Um, but uh, I think that the composition of the OST is so good that it doesn't matter too much in the long run. So. We're going to share with you one of my favorite tracks. I'm going to choose, uh, let's say, Crimea Attacks. I think that was the best one of the battle themes. So here's Crimea Attacks, guys.
All right, so that was Crimea Attacks. Um, I, I really like that one a lot. Shame that you didn't get to experience a few of the good ones, but, you know, I don't really blame you given the, uh, <laughs> given the nature of the pace. I did, I did listen to some of the music in the first couple of missions, and then I was like, I cannot play the game at this <laughs> speed. So I put all the settings to max. I was like, I still cannot play this game at this speed, and that's when I decided to speed up the emulator um like i just want to echo what you said although i didn't listen to it a lot in the game i did spend some time listening to it outside and it sounds fantastic and i'm kind of disappointed i didn't get to experience as part of the gaming experience but the the ugly truth is that the best way to play this game is sped up and if you're playing it sped up you can't listen to the soundtrack and i think that that's how most people should play the game. So I'm sorry, Fire Emblem's OST, but it just just isn't going to work. Yeah, I just bound um speed up and speed down to my arrow keys on my keyboard and did it. Oh, like, yeah, I, that's not a bad idea. Yeah, I slowed it down during the conversation because honestly, the music's at its best during the dialogue. Um, so let's continue with our discussion on the characters. Um, because Fire Emblem is an RPG with a huge cast of characters that you you know recruit and get added to your party. Um, as you go through the game and a large part of this is that there's a lot of dialogue in this game there's a lot of conversations between characters not just during the main plot but in their support conversations when characters develop bonds with each other and that kind of thing um pat how did you feel about you know this very large part of what well, what i think is like one of the biggest i guess allures of the series which is having the huge cast of characters that you you know pick your favorites from as you go through so overall, I actually quite like this. So okay, I had I had some problems with the main story dialogue, and I guess my main criticism of a lot of these interactions is that I found them overly stiff and formal. Like it didn't feel like these the, these characters are like mainly Ike in a lot of his interactions with people. He's he's talking in a very kind of boring formal tone. There's not a whole lot of personality, I feel, coming through in a lot of these scenes. I felt, by contrast, the support conversations that you have between uh, random characters, not random characters, but between the characters under your command as they fight together, I felt like they were more genuine and we got better insights into the personality of these characters. Now, I don't think these characters were tremendously deep or anything. They are still mostly single trait exaggerated characters but they were it was interesting getting an insight into that slice of personality and like i've often said with warcraft 3 the fact that you use these characters on the battlefield the fact that they're not just characters for the sake of being characters means that you develop an emotional investment in them as game units and so that investment in them as game units means that you appreciate the conversations they have with our other characters more. One of the just small interactions, for example, that I quite liked was the relationship between uh, Mist and the big tiger guy, the first one you meet. Uh, the first one I met died before I recruited him. So. Uh, right. <laughs> well, well, the idea is that Mist is terrified of this big tiger guy, but she keeps trying to make friends with him and it's kind of touching the relationship they develop over the over the course of the game as they're you know getting to know one another because he's gentle with her and miss learns to overcome her fear and that's just an example like they're nothing super complicated they're nothing 
super in deep, but I really appreciated the support conversations. And I think that they added a lot to you developing an interest and investment in the units under your command. It does, right? Like when you have a cast of characters that's like, uh, there must be like 30 or 40 characters or something. <laughs> if like... you keep them all alive, I think it's close to 100. If you if you get them all... Now, I was nowhere near that, but I did see a thing on YouTube and someone's just scrolling through all their characters. I was like, what the hell? Google says 46. Oh, is that it? Okay. But you can only get up to 43 in one playthrough. There must be some choices. Um, right. So when you have this many characters you can't make you can't flesh out all of them basically but letting you choose the ones you like the most and following their conversations through from beginning to end does give this like attachment like when we did gorky 17 like one of my biggest problems was that i just did not care about my units like at all like they have the personality of cardboard like here all of the characters' portraits are very exaggerated. You can get a feel for what their personality is supposed to be just by looking at them and through these little exaggerated conversations. It gives it gives you something to latch onto, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's super important in an RPG like this, I think. There were some characters that I think were much better than others. There are a couple who you know, had storylines that played in the main story if they were still alive. Um, I think Jill, for me, was probably the best of these. Um, so, yeah, she joins about a third of the way into the game. Um, and she is an enemy combatant. She is a Wyvern rider. Um, and you're on a boat and she flies over. And, you know, Dayan is super racist and they hate the Lagoos. And you're getting attacked by um, the Crow Lagoos. And even though the Dayan soldier hates you, she hates the, the Lugas more, so she helps you begrudgingly in that battle, um, powered by, you know, her hate of these bird people. And from then on, the boat gets too far away from the mainland, so she's kind of forced to stay with you. And she has these support conversations with Leth, which is the, the cat Lugas you get at the start. And at the very beginning, she asks these very, like, upfront invasive questions that like where she's blatantly you know discriminating against the person and then as they go on they get a bit softer and as the story goes on she starts to realize that you know she's basically been brainwashed her whole life to be racist by you know her countrymen and it's funny you say that you she she died for me early on. That, really? That cat. <laughs> because, yeah. Okay. Yeah, she died at like it, very, very shortly <laughs> after I got her. But it seems you and I had very different support conversations depending on who lived and died. Yeah. And outside of that support conversation, Jill develops that a bit more. And then I think like one of the best parts of the game is that there is a battle in Dane and you're told ahead of time that the commander is Jill's father. And a bunch of the characters come up to Ike and they're like, you should not take her into this battle because it's just a dick move, right? Making this unit kill their father. Um, because she's pretty pretty set on the idea that the Crimean army is in the right here. Um, and I did to see what would happen because I'm terrible. Um, <laughs> and if you have the conversation with her father, she immediately joins the enemy team and fights against you after a fairly long bit of dialogue. But yeah, definitely restarted that mission to not do that. Um, and then even after that, her storyline continues with one of the other commanders like joining your party after and they discuss what it was like back in the, the main army. And I thought that 
you know, these kinds of character interactions, you know, were pretty good, actually. Um, I liked that one in particular. And there were a few, like, silly support conversations that were just fun. And I think that kind of levity, um, you know, adds to a game that's mostly, you know, about a pretty serious military conflict. One of the things that I think is interesting about a lot of these character interactions is how you encounter these characters. Because a lot of the time these characters will join your party as part of a story event, but they'll also join your party on the battlefield. There are a lot of interactions you have with enemy units, neutral units on the battlefield that wind up with them joining your party. Now, at first, I have to admit, I actually missed out on several important characters joining my party because I didn't understand this was a thing. And when I encountered these neutral characters, I walked over to them and I used the rescue function, which I was <laughs> like, oh, I'm going to rescue them, which is a gameplay thing that lets you protect a unit with another unit. What you need to do is have a conversation with that unit. So I missed out on a couple of rather powerful units, but I was okay. I... One of the things I wanted to bring up here is that while the while Ashnard is an evil mustache twirling villain, while the evil nobleman in um in Benyon is an evil mustache twirling villain, a lot of the characters that you fight against are kind of kind of become aware of the dire situation of the corruption of the Mad King, and I think are more balanced in terms of being bad guys, like uh. I'm pretty sure Jill's dad just wants an on honorable battle before he dies. Jill's father was great. Like he, they're, they're basically immigrants from another country who are like, so Jill doesn't know this about her father, but he, I don't think he's actually racist. Like he raised her to be, he's just doing that because that's the only way they can have a good life in this country. Um, where they're escaping, you know, they're basically refugees from another country, and this is the only way to have a real life for his children. Um, so he ends up being a much more sympathetic villain than I think, like, any of the others. Um, you know, the lady is crazy evil, Ashnard's crazy evil, Anna, understandable. Did you, um, did you understand when you first started playing that when there was, like, a named character mini boss that a lot of the time there was a way to get them to your side because that's something i was like completely unaware of for the first third third to half of my time playing this game yeah it's like that in all the other fire emblem games so i yeah. have higher knowledge basically <laughs> I guess it's a lesson i had to learn i i wish it's hard because i think that there's this is where the rpg element of the game comes in a bit there's exploring the environment and interacting with these characters is yep. actually an important part of the game whereas when i came into the game i was like oh this is a tactics game where i need to achieve the objective but it's a bit more it's a bit more wide and exploratory than that and unfortunately that meant that my early time in the game was kind of i think a bit more negative than it needed to be because instead of exploring these environments and trying to figure out what the trigger to recruit characters were, I was just trying to win the map. Yeah. And I don't think that is the way to play Fire Emblem. The other big problem is that in order to achieve later recruitments, you needed to get the early recruitments. So I kind of ended up in, you know, unintentionally cutting myself off from a lot of content yeah. that was kind of secretly hidden away. Yeah. And it wasn't game breaking by any by any stage, but Knowing what I know now, the way I would approach Fire Emblem would be very different. 
Yeah, and I think it's fine to have that as a learning experience. Like, I, I yep. imagine you missed a lot of the house. Like, you can visit the houses if you walk yep. in front of Did them. I didn't didn't do that at all. I yeah, because like, I was like, okay, here's my objective. I I want to get this done as fast and as efficiently as possible. Nah, yeah, there's a lot to the maps, like side objectives, and the side objectives aren't like listed. Like it's not gamified. It's just like supposed to be like a natural part of the <clears throat> RPG experience, I guess. And I don't know if the game would be worse if they did try to point it out to you really hard. Like I kind of no. Like- I- I, I honestly, I don't think it's actually needed because the, not only, the, the game often gives you a lot of hints as to what it is you're meant to do. Yeah. Because there's the conversations you have in base, which can kind of point you in that direction. And if you ever see a mini boss, like a named character, a lot of the time there's something you can do to recruit them. Like mm. they're, they're just, there just is. And it's not, and once I understood that that was a part of the game, I was actively trying to solve that puzzle. It was never hugely difficult. It's just I didn't understand that that was an element of the game. Uh, So I I actually think it's a good system. I wish they had signposted or tutorialized that process at the beginning of the game. You know, it's like sometimes characters will appear on the back, something something really dumb like that. So I would have known that that was a part of the experience. Did you get that interaction with, I don't, you know, that first battle in Dayan with the, the border wall you have to go across and Shinon's there, the archer? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I looked that up. Apparently you need Rolf <laughs> yeah. to be alive. Talk to him, yeah. Rolf died on the first <laughs> mission I had him on. The little boy, I sent him into battle and he got killed in one shot. I'm like, fuck you, guy. Like, I was like, I, I didn't care. Can, can, can I ask you about that, James? How many characters died over the course of your game? Uh, quite a few, actually. So I didn't want to reset on literally every character dying. My rule of thumb was kind of like, if the reason for them dying is like, they got crit and died in one hit from full health. It's like, that's like, I, I didn't do it with some, I, the characters I had vested in heaps, I reset for those. Um, when a character died because I was incompetent, I did let them die a bunch of times. It was like, like, I, I got Titania killed at the end, which was uh, a bit <laughs> rough. It was like, one of the last missions, there was like an extra long range magic user than I thought there was, and she yeah. just got crit and then hit twice, and it was like, "Yep, I guess that's how it happened." Um, yeah, the the way the way I approached it was I kind of called it soft Iron Man, where I wasn't literally Iron Manning, um, but I was generally happy to lose one unit every single battle. Yeah, but if things got out of control and I lost three units or whatever i was like i i need to restart <laughs> i'd say one of the most devastating deaths for me was was reese the me healer, too. he died because as well. he yeah he died for me and he was at that stage my mist wasn't on a horse yet so i went down to one healer and it was in chapter 17 you know that big long extended chapter oh, the, that has the, four the forest parts. yep yeah so i i lost like literally had five or six characters die at the end of it at the end of it, I had less units than the unit cap allowed for. Oh my for. god, that's yeah, jeez. That was yeah. because because I wasn't picking up a lot of those early game units. Like I just wasn't, and jeez, a lot of those early units, 
the ones that I did have joined at like level one or were, were otherwise pretty weak. So yep. they died as well. So that was kind of like my lowest point. Oh yeah, I, I was resetting more than you then. <laughs> yeah. Um but you know, I, I'm not saying I never I never reset because there's definitely times when I reset. Um but I was basically I was happy for like one one unit to die each and every map. And oh. if it got really out of hand I would I would reset. Yeah, when Reese died for me, it was on the battle with Enna in her dragon form. Uh, what? That mission was so easy, though. I'm I'm shocked that there you was had this. Ma- there was a couple of late mages that just sniped him. I th- or yeah. I think, or maybe one of the big gut, one of the big armor dudes. I think had more movement than I thought he did, and he just ran right. through and threw a spear at him. Yeah, because that mission to me was very was straightforward. pretty straightforward. I, the, yeah. the ones I was struggling with in late game was any mission with. Ballista, ballista like the ballista yeah. were because you had the ballista and the sniper mages and that was d- difficult to handle for the most part i actually um and let's I, I want to talk a bit about character customization i think we're leaning in towards that now um so like the long range ballista thing wasn't too bad for me actually because what happened to me early game is i recruited mia and now I don't think Mia's actually a very good unit because in this game swords suck and she's locked to swords. Um, no, I, I don't think I got Mia. That doesn't ring a bell. Yeah. Um, and she has the ability first strike, which means she attacks first no matter what. And I was like, oh, this is inherently powerful. And at that point, I didn't know that swords suck. So I was like, I'm going to put all my bonus XP into this character. Now, she has like... The 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 level ups in this game have weightings, and she doesn't have the best strength weighting, but it's not like terrible. But I got some lucky level ups in a row where she got strength at the start, um, and she became quite strong. Notably, in the end game, she had like a ninety percent chance to dodge. Um, so <laughs> even though her damage fell off hard at the end, and I couldn't kill anything with her. I found a scroll that let me teach her provoke, which meant enemies target her first no matter what. And if you just run a clump of units, the ballista will always just attack her and miss, 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 miss. Mm. Same with the mages. So that was kind of like my dodge tank, um, which helped a lot there. Uh, Reese was a bad loss. He was actually one of my best units at that point. I don't know if you got him to promote. No, it was it was that mission. Part of what made Chapter Seventeen difficult for me was that like I had so many units that were just shy of promotion. Yeah. So they were all they were all like level seventeen, eighteen ish. Yeah. Uh, and so they were kind of like slightly less powerful than they should have been, and then they all got promoted, and the game became easy mode for a little while. Yeah, I spent one of the master seals on Reese pretty early, I think. Maybe a mistake, right. but he it was probably around the boat mission. He gains the ability to use light magic to attack, and his magic stat's actually quite high, so he was like one hitting people pretty consistently for a oh, while. Right. Yeah. So he was offensive for you, wasn't he? Healer? Yeah, he had massive magic defense, but like oh well I was still using him to heal a lot. Um don't right. get me wrong, but um, he was getting kills pretty often uh, until I got him killed, which was devastating. But I was like, I have to let someone die like this. Um, oh, dude, I was so mad with how Reese died for me. A Wyvern just jumped over trees, like yeah. on that on on chapter four. Yeah, but you know how on the last part you kind of need to circle around the trees while there's a mage sniping you from behind the trees. Yeah. 
He got too close to the trees. The Wyvern just jumps from where the boss is <laughs> and kills him. I'm like, fuck this game. Why need it to good? It's like raising them up to be strong takes a bit, but if you can do it, like they become busted. Yeah. yeah. So did you did you do much um much character customization? I I played around with it a little bit. I I felt like compared to other people online, the amount of skills I had in my skill pool seemed a lot lower, but that might have just been because I got less characters. Because you can take skills off characters and no. reassign them and move them around. If you take them off, they'd get deleted forever. You can't take them off. Basically, you're... Oh, those might just, just be the ones I assigned to them. Because you... I swear I took skills off at least once. You can take skills off, but you can't give them back once they're gone. Um, oh, right. Yeah, and throughout the missions, there's, like, chests and houses and enemies that drop skill scrolls, and that's the main way of... on the. You either get a skill on the character base, because they just have it, you either get one when they promote, or you use an occult scroll, or to give them a special, a ability, specific, yeah, yeah skill yeah, scroll. So, so I use I use my occult scroll on Ike and yep. and uh, Titania. Um, I uh, gave I tried to give my healers shade, which makes them less targetable. I tried the provoke skill on a character. Um, and it kind of worked, but then they died. I was like, maybe I shouldn't be using this provoke scroll because I didn't have a dodge tank like you did. In general, I didn't end up finding heaps of skill scrolls, so no. I didn't delve into the system super deeply. But I'm sure that if I was doing all the optional objectives, opening every single chest, etc., etc., I would have gotten more of them. I think there's like 12 or something in the whole game, to give you an example. Like, there's like... Okay. 12 so character customization options you have like a handful of skill scrolls some of which are really powerful some of which are not so much um you have uh the drops which kind of give base stats to characters and i think maybe um might influence their their weightings on level ups but i'm not 100 percent sure on that um there is the Night Ward, which you get on Astrid, which increases defense for whoever has it equipped, but also increases their chance of getting speed ups. Um, and then, you know, there's, you know, equipment and stuff like that, and a bonus experience, which we can talk about. But there isn't a heap here. I found that what was here I enjoyed, but I constantly, and especially in the late game, was wanting more of it. I wanted to make more skill decisions. I wanted more skills to play around with and to put on characters. Because, like, near the end of the game, I felt like I had, like, three super stacked units and then a bunch of just okay ones. Yep, that's mostly how I felt. And the game does encourage you to build up specific units into powerhouses because of the way experience works yep as opposed to spreading it around i mean you can only control so many units so you can't if you spread it around evenly you it doesn't make any sense it's far better to have fewer powerful units than an even spread um and like the skills are fun for the most part like most of them are passive things like for example wrath which is when your character is below hp they get uh, 50% added to their crit chance, so like 10% goes to 60% chance to crit, which is kind of insane. <laughs> or stuff like First Strike, which is always attack first. Uh, gamble, which is you can activate it instead of the attack option, and it says 
you know, half chance to hit, double chance to crit. Um, you know, most of them are fun, I'd say, um, which is like kind of the main reason why I was disappointed there weren't more of them, because, you know, I liked putting them on units. I liked figuring out which skill was best on which unit, which is obviously somewhat influenced by how lucky you are with level up rolls and that kind of thing. Um, so I think the system design-wise is great. Uh, I just want more of it. Yeah, and I would say I basically agree. I, I think that there's not enough here. Uh, a couple of the units you get throughout the game have some interesting, unique abilities. Like uh, you get a flyer that has the ability Reinforce that yeah. lets you call in three neutral NPCs, which seems completely overpowered to me. I, I don't know about you, James, but just even if you just use them as meat shields, it gives you a lot of a lot of time and they take up a lot of attention. Um, one of my favorite units to use before he got sniped by a ballista and I was very mad was uh, the Heron guy who when he's transformed oh into the Heron Lagoos, he can give everyone in an area around him an extra turn. Yes, yeah. So Dancer is a class that's in the other Fire Emblem games, but it's always oh. it's always only you put, you select one unit to give an extra turn. He can Which select, is his default default yeah, mode. He yeah. can select four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah which is like nuts and he has flying movement yeah he he's very his movement isn't great but the, the ability he has when transformed i basically gave him the lagoos stone so he was always transformed yep. and it was it was really strong but then yeah he got sniped by a ballista <laughs> in one shot and i was like you know from like 15 squares away i was like okay game I see how we're playing this. We, we will be getting into discussion of gameplay soon, okay? Like, I, I have a lot to say about gameplay, but yeah, there's there's parts of this game that, you know, make me wring, wring my hands in, in despair. <laughs> but overall, with, with characters, the character customization, the investment you have in characters, I think it's pretty good. I do think that these characters aren't super deep. I do think that, that for the most part, they're not super interesting. But they don't need to be. Uh, it's a large cast of characters. You pick your favorites. You level them up and customize them. And you grow invested and attached to them over your time playing with them. So I think that the way characters work in this game on the whole ends up being the strongest story aspect of this game. Because I feel like the plot and structure fall apart towards the end. But you still do give a damn about the characters on yeah. command, regardless of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I kind of agree that this is probably the biggest strength of the series, full stop, um, is just this structure of having, you know, a heap of characters for you to grow invested in, for you to pick your favorites. Like, I think a lot of the systems allow you to run with, you know, whichever character you like, whether they're good or not. Um, the inclusion of this bonus experience system where you are given xp that you can allocate you know outside of battle during inventory management so you know you get a character and they're kind of hard to get into battle without dying so you just save up a bunch of bonus xp and then you just dump it on them until they're in a spot where they can hold their own i think is great and is something that really helps to you know let you make anything viable basically um so you know on the whole i think this is a good implementation of the system uh, just um, before we wrap up on our character discussion, who's your favorite character overall? Oh, man. I'm going to be honest, James. I I don't love any character in this in this game. I wasn't like, oh, my God, this is the greatest character ever. I think I would have liked Soren more, but 
in the end, he just came across as being a bit edgy. I did like him as a story device, though. Like, I, I liked that he was, that there was a cynical, more pragmatic person in Ike's command structure. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know, James. You go first. I'll, I'll think about it a bit more. Who is your favorite character? <laughs> okay, so my favorite character is not a unit. And I don't even know if they're super well written, but they're just by far the most entertaining character in the story. Um, and that was no contest King Kilvis. Uh, just an absolute mad lad, this guy. Um, completely insane, but he's, uh, I don't know. Which I one was Kilvis? Was he the crow? The crow king? Yeah. yeah. It's just like such a prick. But what was his game plan? <laughs> I'm so confused by what his long-term game plan <laughs> well, I, was. <laughs> I think he was just interested in the in I don't know the his own country basically. Like I I it wasn't super clear. I got to admit, admit, but man, all the sh stupid shit he did so entertaining. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be honest, James. Like in terms of favorite character, the fact of the matter is these characters are all fairly simple. Um, like I like Jill's arc. Uh, I like Soren as being a bit more pragmatic and sarcastic, even though he's not sarcastic, pragmatic, pragmatic and cynical. Even though he's inexplicably racist for no real reason in a very aggressive way that um, didn't seem to fit in with his character. I think this is a thing that is explored in the sequel. I looked this up because, like you, right. there is this outburst of racism from this character right at the start and i was like up until this point he was cold and pragmatic but this was like this was like not pragmatic it was emotional and angry um and it mm. was like very outside of his character and i was trying to figure out what the hell but yeah the, his character's a big thing in the sequel so um that's i think that's where that's coming from basically right because he's dayan basically although ike technically is too um by birth mm. uh but i think that's where that's from yeah so james unfortunately i don't have a good answer to this i i was more invested in my units as units that kill stuff i guess if i had to pick one it would be titania because <laughs> the way i was playing the game from the start was i need to achieve my objective i was like Man, Titania is a fucking unit. I she just sent her into the middle She's of the enemies insane. and she kills everyone. And everyone was telling me I was falling for a noob trap and I was being an idiot and you're not actually meant to use your, your good unit. And I was very confused. It's actually not the case in this game because normally... Okay. Nor, so I thought that it would be the case because in Awakening you have Frederick who's a paladin at level 11 and you get him from the first mission as well. But Right. Because he's level 11, he only gets nine level ups and his, you know, level up stats aren't that great. So if you don't level up the other characters, you fall behind a bit. The characters in Path of Radiance can easily overtake Titania, but Titania still is... Is good. I was using her in the last yeah, battle. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, I wasn't because so, so she died, but... <laughs> Right, yeah, so Titania, for me, if I had to name one character, if I had to pick one character, it would probably be her, because I got a lot of out of her as a gameplay unit. I could always rely on Titania. She was often the cornerstone of my strategy, and um, I, I don't, I, I like her as, as a mentor to Ike. Like, she is a logical person to take over the mercenary company, and in the early stages, she basically is running it yep. with Ike by her side you know and ike's nominally in charge but she's really the one doing it and then she gradually lets him take over command and actually run the run the company so yeah if i had to pick one it would be titania 
Yeah, um, I've got to mention that battle um, at the border with Shinon. Did you, how did he die for you? Because for me, um, Titania and Shinon had the final battle and they just shared this like gut-wrenching conversation right at the end, like before I'm they pretty sure, I'm pretty sure Oscar ran in. So I had, I had an inter, Oscar is the, he's one of the knights at the, gre- the very the, start. the green dude. <laughs> the, the green dude. Because I lost... I can't remember his other who it is, but he's Boyd. a guy with an axe. Yeah, Boyd. Boyd died for me. Fuck. So, but I, but I kept Rolf. So Rolf uh, walked in and he had the conversation. It was just a brief exchange. And I then thought you he... said Rolf died immediately. No, not not Rolf. The, Oscar. So Oscar. Yeah, Oscar had the conversation with him. The guy, the guy in the night. So he walked in and he killed Shinon and, and you know he hit him twice and he died. So it was kind of anticlimactic. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because he and Titania talk for a bit, and then it's like, and then it's like she's like, "Yeah, we should hold nothing back," uh, or something. And he's like, "I think this is the only time we've ever agreed." Can you can you get him back into your squad? Yeah, you have to have Rolf talk to him. <laughs> oh, right. <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> and then because like because he's an archer, because he thought Shinon was cool, basically, and then Shinon <laughs> like. It's like but even Shinon, this, Shinon likes him. Okay, that makes yeah, sense. even Shinon's cold, cynical heart is broken here, and he can't kill Rolf. Like basically, oh, so, okay. yeah, you need to have them talk, and then you need to have Ike fight him. Yeah, I, I missed that. I didn't take Rolf to that battle. Um, but yeah, I think there are some okay characters here. I liked Rayson. I liked the the Hawk Lugus leader. Um, I thought some of. Alicia's friend, like people at her castle, were cool. Yeah, um, the princess was unbearable. I couldn't see her. <laughs> not at Every all. Every time I had conversation with her, I'm like, Jesus Christ. But she turns into a good unit in the end. I don't know if you used her much, but I pumped a bunch of bonus XP into her. She's it was a unit. She's a good unit. Yeah. 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 A lot of the characters can be. Um. But yeah. Um. I kind of agree that not any that there aren't too many standouts. But I thought I enjoyed most of them. I would say. Mm. All right. Now, let's finally get into talking about the tactics gameplay. Um, Sounds like uh, music break time first, though, James. Okay, well, what, what was your favorite track, Patrick? <laughs> so, so I don't have a whole lot to choose from, but I'm going to go with Clash, which is a battle theme that plays. So the idea is you have music playing in the background, and then every single time one of your units fights an enemy unit, it goes into uh, this theme starts playing. So I remembered this theme. I think it's got a good amount of energy to it. I do wonder if you'd go nuts if you listen to the music while playing this game for long enough, though. Because um, you, you, would, you would hear this theme like 150 times over the course of a single battle, right? Every time one of your units fights an enemy unit. Um, but, you know, it's actually a different track, depending on oh, okay. if, if you attack them or if they attack you or if it's a boss. So yeah, okay, actually so there a is bunch. a bit of variance. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I liked it, but I do, I do secretly wonder if I would have ended up muting the music eventually, yeah. anyway. But but it's it's a good soundtrack. This is a good song. This is Clash.
Alrighty, that was Clash. So finally get to get to talk a bit about the um the combat in this game. This is usually where we'd end the episode at an hour and twenty, <laughs> but um you know it's a long one. It was thirty hours, so it gets the time that it deserves. Um, so tactically, I'd say this game is quite simple. The turns work off. Um, you take the turn for all of your guys, and then the enemy takes their turn. A large part of the combat is determined by, you know, units' stats, their equipment, and the weapon triangle, um, which basically says that swords beat axes, axes beat spears, and spears beat swords. There are ranged units, which have about an extra, you know, square of range, maybe two if they have a nice long bow, or half the battlefield if they have a strong spell. Um, and <laughs> you also have a couple of extra options like shove, which lets you push a unit a tile, or rescue, which lets you pick someone up effectively. And, you know, for the most part, I'd say that tactically this game's actually very simple. Um, you know, I'd say even often to its detriment. Um, there isn't a whole lot of, you know, tactical, you know, decisions you're making here other than is my unit in range to be attacked? Because um, to me, for Fire Emblem as a series has always had a bit of this issue where the main tactic that you will use is you will look at the movement range of every single enemy unit, and then you'll move your guys one square behind that so that they can't get attacked. Um, and then once the enemies move closer, because the enemies, you know, they don't have very good AI, they just run at you. Um, you can then go in safely and kill them before they attack you. And this is effective or not effective depending on the mission you are on, which I think is a lot of where the more enjoyable decision making comes from. But for the most part, I'd say it's quite simple. So basically, you're, it's a, it's a grid-based system, so square grid-based. And your objective is usually something like kill the enemy boss or kill every unit, uh, reach this square and secure it, which is usually behind the entire enemy forces. So generally what you do is you gradually move your forces forward towards the enemy, engaging them as you go along. Uh, interestingly, you said, James, that you just kept your units out of range. One of the things that's different about this game compared to other games I have is how retaliation works. Uh, every unit has infinite retaliation if they're if they're if they're within range. So if your guy gets shot by a bow and he's got an axe, it can't retaliate. But if ten units come up and attack him with a lance, they'll yep. they'll retaliate every single time. So I wasn't just staying out of range. I would often send a unit forward into enemy range and have that unit be the only one with an enemy range because they would do more damage with retaliatory attacks than they would purposefully trying to seek out and hunt down each of the other enemies they enemies yeah, would suicide I did that a lot too <laughs> yeah I, I would i would summarize the tactics of this game being positing your forces correctly not just staying out of range then moving forward and attacking it's putting your forces in such a position and arraying them in such a way that the enemy basically impales themselves on your swords because the enemy will do that if you give yeah, them the Yeah, that's kind of what I did with so. Mia because, you know, by the end of the game, and I think I took a screenshot of this actually, uh, was by far <laughs> the unit in, in my command that had the most... She had like... It was like... 
You know, at the end of the game, they show the credits and then they roll like a list of the victories and they show you which units you use the most and all their stats and that kind of thing. And it was like second best unit got mm -hmm. like 90 kills. It's like Mia got like 300 kills or something <laughs> fucked like that. <laughs> yeah, and it was because she That's got ahead nuts, with stats yeah. early, and because she had first strike, and she had huge speed and skill stats, that she had like, well, she had like a 70% crit chance, and she always attacked first, so you put her in, unit runs up to her, her first strike activates, she crits and kills them from full to zero before they can hit her, and then that would happen like 10 <laughs> times in a row, um, and then... Honestly, I think a part of the my lack of enjoyment of the end game was that she got XP capped and felt bad to not use those characters anymore. Um, but yeah, like the retaliation thing and the weapons triangle ends up being a huge part of the experience. And I think that they kind of simplify the tactics a lot. Like that tactic you mentioned is definitely the primary one that players are going to use because the range units in this game are extremely fragile um so you really can't risk sending them in because what i would do is i would have a bunch of beefy units one super beefy unit in range and then just this gaggle of support units like so far back just in case like a flyer or a horse mm -hmm. unit would get into range um and I felt like my options in combat were massively limited by how just unsafe the healers and the archers and the mages were. Like, I just did not want to use any of those classes because they were so fragile. Because if they were in range to attack something, they probably couldn't kill it in one turn, which meant them, like the enemy AI would always target them first. Um, because it's very good at, you know training your healers and squishy units like the ai knows what it can attack and i think this problem is like enormous i uh, the simplicity of this game is not in and of itself problematic like you can have a solid simple strategy game and it would have been fine but the problem with the vulnerability of these units is that your entire strategy and tactical approach gets warped around keeping these units alive i uh, there are a couple of factors going into this. Like I said, when a unit dies, they are dead. That is it. They don't go down, and then you can resurrect them. It's not like they're dead for the battle, and you can use them the next battle. They're gone. And this could be a unit that you have invested literally thousands of experience points into. And even into the mid-game, these units will still die in one hit. So the whole battle becomes less about successfully executing your strategy and it becomes more about doing whatever you can to keep those units alive and that's really all that you care about you'll eventually get the enemy to cut themselves on your swords but if your units die that is absolutely devastating and i think that this really came to the head to a head for me on the on the boat mission you know when you're on the boat and you have the flyers attacking you yep I literally formed a wall, a solid wall around my two or three weak units that were in the center of that wall. And that's how I did that fight. It was sit in place, do not move, wait for the enemies to attack me. And I was thinking the whole time, this is so fucking stupid. Like, where is the 
strategic decision making? Where is the risk taking? Because I was disincentivized from doing anything but exactly this, because all it takes is one stray attack and these units are dead. So what can you do, James? You 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 can't take a risk because there is no the potential payoff for the risk is so low, but the consequences of the risk are ridiculous. And I think also unit balance is a massive problem. Like, I'm not saying that, yeah. you know, with Titania, she's stronger than everyone else at the start, and narratively that makes sense. And a lot of the missions, there are so many units that you kind of have to have her on her own, like 1v10, while the other guy's like 3v1. That kind of thing I'm not so much worried about. What I mean is that the class balance in this game is kind of terrible. Um, Paladins are just so much better than every other character in the game by like so much. Like they are on a horse, so they get like three times as much movement as everyone else. They can also move, attack, and then move, move again. Whereas and then move again. No other unit it's can insane. do that. Uh, the Paladins have quite a diverse weapon selection like you can have often two weapon proficiencies and you get to choose when yeah. they upgrade as well you you don't you're not it's so you get to diversify their weapons so you always have someone with a top tier weapon. yeah and because there's only three weapon types like if you have two out of the three covered right you always four four because there's also bows yeah but it doesn't really but, but yeah you, but you're never ineffective against bows right like if i attack no. a spearman with a swords person i might miss a lot because i'm losing the rock paper scissors mm -hmm. um but you never lose the rock paper scissors on them um and because they're tanky they're massively like they, tanky they, they have well yeah, huge yeah. stats um they're just like the best units they're strong so they can always because pick rescuing other units is based on strength um, so you can rescue other units more easily, you can capture objectives without them dying, like, they're just hugely better than, like, literally every other class. And then you have, like, Archer, which has paper-thin defensive stats, can only shoot one tile away from them, so... Doesn't retaliate in me melee. It doesn't retaliate in melee, like, is kind of slow, uh... So they have no, they don't have really have a range advantage actually compared to paladins who can literally equip ranged axes and ranged spears and have the same yep. range as an archer. Yeah. Like there's no reason to use a bowman over. And they'll do more damage than the archer most like, of the time, except specifically against flying units. Yeah. Yeah. And like the the ranged spears still benefit from them having massive strength. So. There's almost zero reason to ever use an archer unit in this game. Swords just suck because swords can't have a... Like, there's a magic sword later in the game that scales off your magic and does ranged attacks, but because of the way, like, you throw a unit forward and then have them defend themselves, like, ten times, killing ten units, like, a unit defending with a throwing spear means that even if an archer attacks them, they can just kill them on the retaliation <laughs> whereas if you have a sword user who doesn't have a ranged weapon they can't retaliate against archers so they're useless in that situation and that was kind of why mia fell off you know offensively is because she like she can dodge heaps but she can't attack all the ranged units and they generally pile the ranged units against you before going in with the killing blow on a melee enemy
Uh, I just think the class balance and the weapon balance in this game is like really terrible and I think it hurts the experience a lot. See, my main problem is that once I'd identified this tactical approach of these units are strong at the front, move them together as a block, keep the healers and other vulnerable units safe, my base strategy did not really shift nope. the entire time I played the game. Yep. At all. Like that, th there is, there is no reason to ever deviate from that strategy. The, the, there are some interesting tweaks in some of the level, level design that, that makes you play a bit differently, but your fundamental strategy never changes because like when Mist uh, gets an upgrade, she becomes a, um, a Valkyrie. So she goes on a horse and she becomes a bit tankier. That was good because I actually could survive a hit from the enemy. Um, I also put shade on her, so she she felt a bit. Uh, I, she felt. I don't know how those skills work because I had this situation where my mist with shade, because I did that too, was standing yep. next to Mia with provoke, and an enemy ran past Mia and attacked mist, and I was like, "What the fuck?" Probably a dice roll. It it's must probably be a like dice a roll. Yeah. Thing. yeah, yeah, but basically, it it kind of started to work then because there was a bit more. Because they were just a bit more survivable. Mm. It, you know, there was just a bit more. So I, I at times I, I left a flank explode pose. She'd get attacked and I'd be able to retreat her and heal it with her again. It felt like I could make a mistake or make a slightly suboptimal move and then get away with it. And the game became a bit better at that stage. But yeah, mostly I was not really engaged or super enjoying because it never developed into anything more. And a lot of the problems with this and something that could be easily used to solve this is when units get downed, instead of having them just be dead, have them go down. And if you don't send a unit to resurrect them with a specific item within three turns, then they're dead. And I think the thing is, when I first suggested this, someone's like, oh, yeah, there are casual modes that do that in the later Fire Emblem. And it's, it's not that I want the game to be easier. It's that the very fact that units die means that you have to play the game in such a way you have to warp your strategy around them not dying to the point where it's not enjoyable if you could take a risk and instead of getting punished with the death they got punished with going down and then i had to get another unit that has a specific item to resurrect them and weigh that and figure out the best turn to do it it becomes a more strategically complex uh, scenario it's not that I want the game to be easier, it's that I want the game to be more interesting. And I think that if units became unconscious and you had to res them, the game would be more strategically interesting. Or even if they lost levels and you couldn't use them for a few, you know, battles, I would be... Yeah, they became wounded. Yeah, or you know, something like that. Fatigued, what, whatever it was. You got punished for it, but not to such an extreme degree. Yeah, because currently, with the way, you know, the them throwing themselves on your spears thing works, along with the death, you're really, really encouraged to do this really kind of boring um, defensive play style. Yeah, yeah. You can, like, every single time I was like, I'm bored, I want to be aggressive, I resulted yeah, in me, it, yeah. like, reloading a save or, like, it's just, like, you just, you get beaten down and you're like, okay, I have to play this very by-the-numbers strategy that's just no fun half the time. It's also important to note that when you get punished, you don't get just get punished from a gameplay perspective. You get punished from a story perspective yeah. as well. 
because so much of this game is your interactions with these characters and these characters' quests and their supports and all this other stuff. Stuff which I've said is good. You lose that. You lose out on those interactions. So the game, it, in, it, it seems insane to me. Like, are you meant to play this game? I, I can't imagine you're meant to play this game pure Iron Man because if I did, I probably would have soft-locked myself effectively if I had gone into this playing pure Iron Man as my first run through of this game. So maybe you're meant to play it with reloading saves and Iron Man is meant to be a thing that you do for repeated playthroughs as kind of like a challenge mode. I don't really know because it just seems to be at war with itself, the the way that it's set up and it, it doesn't it doesn't strike me as a good system. I like the idea of losing the units and that being devastating when you lose them. Like that is a part of war and that is like I'm happy to, you know, suffer that. Like that is something that makes the experience more, you know, meaningful when you do keep them alive. I just think that there's a there's some kind of problem here that needs to be addressed. Yeah, because I don't understand how as a new player you can possibly commit to that when all it takes is a single flying unit 15 tiles away seeing a single gap in your line. Like, am I meant to play so perfectly that I prevent that? Am I meant to then play the game without having any healers if my two healers get sniped off like that? Is that the intention of the game? Because it, I, I just, it just doesn't feel right. I, I don't think I would have got through the game if I'd really committed to Iron Man from level one. I don't know about you, James, if you feel more, more confident. It's, it's weird, right? Because on one hand, I'm saying that the tactics are too simplistic and easy. And then on the other, it's like, if I didn't reload saves, I might not have beaten it. Mm. So I don't know how I feel about this game's difficulty. Like, I don't feel like the difficulty was engaging. Like, in this game... When you're surveying the battlefield on your turn, if you hover over an enemy and you tap the A button, it will highlight the area around them where they can move. And then if you do that to multiple units, you can make like a big grid that shows you where every enemy's movement is. Mm. Um, in the new games, like in Awakening, you just hold down a button and it just shows all of them at once anyway. So it's just a like UI. There's a dedicated so. button, yeah. Um, yeah. Because a lot of my like losses were to forgetting about one unit on the side whereas that wouldn't happen in the newer games but i don't think that fixes my issue with the tactical complexity you know um yeah it, it's important to note like there are no uh aoe attacks that i know of maybe maybe no. there are special units that have an aoe attack but there's no aoe attacks there's no flanking in this game if you attack them from the side of the back there's no bonus damage and your units pretty much, some of them have special abilities, but mostly you're just moving and attacking or moving and rescuing, and that's it. Did you get any use out of Shove? I think I used Shove once or twice to try and get a, one of my own units to safety. Um, I used it in the stealth level. Ah, <laughs> uh, right. Yeah, see, I basically got busted immediately in that stealth level and just fought everything. Oh, I just, I reloaded like a hundred times because <laughs> I wanted to do it because yeah. it was fun. Uh the way opening chests work in this game is like very confusing to me. The way it works as, as part of the battle is confusing to me because some of these battles have like this objective, like escape or reach the end or what, whatever. You have to get one of your units to a tile and escape, right? It might take seven or eight turns to do it, but there's like six chests on the level and you have one thief. So it took me 17 turns because after I'd killed all the enemies, I was just moving my thief around yeah. 
to all of the chests <laughs> to open the chests. So I was like, is is this what I'm meant to be doing? Yeah, I think it would just be better if anyone can open them. Honestly, like, I think that the mission objectives and the map design ends up doing the majority of the heavy lifting where the gameplay and the tactics don't. Like, a mm. lot of these issues with the lack of strategy, to me, are amplified in in the maps early on that are just these big open fields with no terrain um, or, like, little details. Like, on maps where you have a mountain where people are rolling boulders down at you. Yeah, or, that's one of the ones I was going to bring up uh, yeah, as an interesting tweak. Yeah, or there's siege ballistas, or, you know, there's a bunch of maps that have enough extra stuff and i'd say most of the maps have some kind of gimmick to them that it um, makes up for how somewhat unengaging the combat can be a lot of the time so while i am quite low on the system overall um my actual engagement in a lot of these maps wasn't that bad just because i think the map design's actually pretty decent most of the time that's interesting i'm much lower on the map design i think that the battles still mostly play out in exactly the same way that one with the boulders rolling down the hill was actually a legitimate change so i don't want to say they're all awful but or like the, the one part, on the bridge with the mines now with, yeah. the, with the pits you mean that you yeah 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 there, uh, there were some interesting tweaks don't get me wrong but i still was following that same fundamental yep. strategy and that that did not change, and that's what ultimately irritated me about this game, that I felt like my arm was being twisted into playing the same way every time, and unfortunately, there's just no way really around that. Maybe there's some cool play style if you get the right characters that I'm unaware of, but I was just playing very safe and defensively and carefully, and as long as I you know, stayed in my lane and was a good little boy and didn't take any risks, uh, everything generally worked out. Just to elaborate a bit more, I think a lot of it's because of how these choke points work, um, particularly on those missions that are indoors. You can just block off choke points. Now, you, I'm, I'm not going to say it's brainless because it is a little bit interesting arranging your units to maximize the terrain to create optimal choke points. But once you've done that, there's nothing the enemy can really do about it, right? You have these snipers, the sniper mages and the sniper ballista, which are problematic. But in the end, you just put your healers and shit really far back until you take care of those long-range units. Yeah. I just don't think there's much here. And playing the game, even though it wasn't, say, as brainless as Lunar Silver Star story, uh, it was still fairly brainless by the end i wasn't really being given meaningful decisions is probably a it's kind of it. interesting coming to this after gorky where we spoke about how powerful um, crowd control was in that game and that allowed you to get in like to throw units into the front stun yeah. an enemy and then start hitting them everything's so scary in this game you just have to hang back and wait and be patient and it's boring um i want to like throw my melee units in and have a wild time not that's actually a great point the, the there's the lack of status effects and stuns and everything does make it a less interesting tapestry it's just damage right and there are yeah and there are tactical things in this game like there's spells that put people to sleep that the enemies have that you can get there's long range spells and the problem is all of these have like five uses and you get one in the entire game so you don't want to use them so 
Like, I literally never used any of these because I was afraid I'd need them in the last battle <laughs> or something. So, like, why do they have five uses? Give me, like, 20 uses, please. Maybe um, they're too strong. I, yeah. I don't know. I didn't really use them either, so. Yeah. Um. So I will say, during the maps, you know, to me, there was enough going on narratively that was enjoyable, mostly that I mostly enjoyed the missions. Like, for example, um, on that bridge map, where there's like mines that explode and make pits like that's not super interesting mechanically but i really like it narratively and that talking to characters to recruit them trying to open the chests trying to beat the thieves to the chests that kind of thing there was the map where you get ambushed by the black knight midway through randomly and he just killed like two of my units immediately it was terrifying like that's not mechanically or tactically interesting it's kind of bullshit to be honest but narratively it's bullshit i can get behind um and, and in general i do agree with that i and in a broader sense as well i think that all of the battles that you're in have a good reason to exist and they yeah. all form part of the broader story that you know like when you're advancing into that territory or as you're retreating from from Crimea the first time, each and every battle has its place and exists for a reason. So I can get behind that idea. There was no filler, as it were. Yeah, and it's not like... Because the battles are really dice roll-based in a lot of ways, they can still be kind of exciting from that point of view sometimes. Like, you, like sometimes I would still, against my best judgment, run a unit in because they had, like, a good chance to crit, and I was, like, hoping on it. And that was fun when that happened, and then... You know, I, I gotta be honest, the level up system in this game is like pure dopamine for me. Like I love rolling big level up numbers and like I once had a level so up funny. and gained zero stats. I was yeah, like, me too. <laughs> I was, I was, like, this is bullshit. It's like, how is this a level up? I was so confused. Yeah, and then you have the level ups where like literally every stat goes up or a stat goes up by two somehow. It's like, what the hell? This is great. Um I, I've seen people say that they would prefer it to be deterministic, and I think they're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it, it's what makes it fun, and it's what makes repeat playthroughs like a thing, right? Um, yeah. yeah. So overall, James, I was, um, I'm pretty down on the tactical gameplay of Fire Emblem, and I think that more than anything else, this is my biggest disappointment with this game. I don't think this game's gameplay is horrible. Like, I, I don't. I think there is enough going on here that I was kind of interested, and it was interesting figuring out the best approach. But once you figured it out, there's literally no reason to deviate it from it. And yep. playing defensively and safely, endlessly, is not as fun as playing more aggressively and riskily and, you know, having opportunity cost to your decisions. So... Overall, yeah, the tactics of this game, it's one of the worst I've ever played. From a tactics point of view, I would still put it above uh, Luna, like a, like a traditional JRPG. There's more decision-making than that, but there still isn't really much. So unfortunately, yeah, this, this part of the game really didn't work for me, and I think that I ended up enjoying the story more than the this brick and mortar gameplay yeah the last thing i would say is that i think that there's another difference between us as players here where um we even spoke about this a couple weeks ago but like when we did gorky 17 a big part of the game for me was maximizing xp gains right mm, um that's true well, yeah yeah and here because your units some units are so weak there's often these like mini puzzles 
are happening where you're like trying to figure out how to get these weak units XP like without putting them in too much risk because you like you need them to fight some amount to level up so and I was like because I was convinced that Titania would be like the other you know pre-promote units in the other games mm. so I was like trying to avoid using her which made the start a lot harder for me because I was trying to maximize my XP with the weak units like if you're doing that kind of thing I think the battles become more interesting because suddenly you know because the optimal strategy as you said is boring as hell whereas like if you're trying to optimize XP you need to take risks and do weird stuff to make it work so for me because I was doing that from the first mission all the way through to the last part of the game I think that took a lot of the edge off of the simplistic combat um, like a lot. Uh, whereas I think you said you didn't do much of that. Yeah, when we talked about this, I referred to it as Magikarping. Off, um, <laughs> from Pokemon Red and Blue, There's uh, you can buy a Magikarp at level 5 right at the start of the game. And I remember I did runs of Pokemon Red and Blue where I would send that Magikarp out at the start of every fight to gain a little bit of experience and swap it out and so on and so forth. So I could get my powerful Gyarados later in the game. And I thought that was a fun gimmick in Pokemon Red and Blue. Uh, I think if it's the central mechanic of your game, it's less, less interesting. And I was doing this a little bit. Like, I wanted to get Sorin XP and I wanted to get my lower level units XP. You know, it's like I want to heal something with Mist every single turn and so on and yep. so forth. But I wasn't contorting myself in two to save experience for these units. I was. <laughs> and, and, and the thing is, James, while I, while I tried to do this a little bit, what would often happen is I would, you know, get my, I think her name was Nefalia or something. There were, there were two units, Brom and Nefalia, that joined a bit early and, like, throw a javelin at someone. Oh, uh, Nephany? Nephany, yeah. The blue, yeah. Yeah, it, you know, it might do four damage. And then another unit swooped in and killed her in one hit. And it's like, uh, like, am I meant to restart here or do I just accept this as a reasonable loss? And that's, ended, that's what ended up happening. I ended up accepting these unit deaths as reasonable losses. And as a consequence, my stronger units got stronger and stronger and stronger, stronger and stronger. stronger. And my yeah. weaker units were so much relatively weaker that they were basically useless. And I ended up using my bonus XP as a way to get yep. units to a reasonable level to actually contribute to the fight. That's what it's for, right? Yeah, and you get more bonus XP if you finish objectives faster. So it suits my playstyle more, right? Because mm. I was just trying to achieve the objective as fast as I could. So I would get my bonus XP. I would pour that bonus XP into the units I was using and my other weak units would die. And so I just did that over and over again. And so I do think that the game does accommodate to a non-Magikarping playstyle, even if it is perhaps a bit less interesting than the puzzle you were going through. Yeah, I tried to get Nephany strong. Like, Wrath is such a cool ability. Uh, she just always hit, like, a feather the entire game. It was very disappointing. Um, Jill, on the other hand... Became yeah. a massive powerhouse. Yeah, she so she died for me. I had the first time I tried to get through chapter to seventeen was very rough. Like, yeah. So I actually restarted chapter seventeen, uh, from from the beginning from part one. Part of the problem was I didn't have enough weapons. So <laughs> as I was on the battlefield in chapter four, I was like juggling weapons between my units. 
like I killed a guy. I'm like, oh my god, it's an axe. So I buried the nice. axe to another unit and traded it to them. Were you forging weapons enough? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I didn't use it much to start with, but then I used it as a way to. I basically forged weapons for my weaker units as a way yeah. to balance their power level. Like Jill was a person who I forged the most powerful weapon I could for because she was underperforming a bit damage wise early on and it yeah. brought her up to more of a reasonable level so i was a bit confused by forging at first because i didn't know how the the game's economy would work but when i realized that the game just throws so much money at you and i realized you're just meant to forge weapons every time you go back to base i started yep. using it more yeah you can make some really strong stuff with it man when jill promotes she just starts taking like I don't know how often you saw where a unit would hit another unit and it would do literally no damage. Yeah. Um, yeah, she just becomes immune to physical almost. That, um, that was and, something... And... So I know, <laughs> I know that we're just continuing onwards. Do you feel like level disparity overrules the weapon triangle and unit type in a lot of cases? Because it could, yes. I, which I, I felt... think is good, actually. Well, I, I didn't actually like this because once again, I feel like it decrease the tactical focus in favor of right. here's my strong uber unit that either takes no because it's not that it just that it reduces damage it's that you have better dodge chance like if your yep. titania is strong enough not only will she take no damage from the enemy but she'll just dodge half the attack she'll dodge half the magic attacks like they just become nigh invulnerable if you've got yep. enough of a level advantage yeah, uh, that was not the case for me on the final battle where the all the units are insane. I know, uh, no, like, not the final battle. It's it's far more balanced than that. Yeah, the final battle, yeah, because like there's a cap on how far things can get, yeah. how strong things can get. I um I had not been leveling Ike up very much because my feeling was that he like if he dies i lose the mission so i never wanted to put him in harm's way a lot oh, of the time i put him in harm's way all the time he's a very strong unit I, yeah he, I, he is, is one but... of my he was one of my frontline fighters yeah see i had boyd instead who was like an absolute powerhouse yeah, he was he was a... dead <laughs> yeah yeah so i um so come the final battle Man, I had to like sacrifice like half my units. So does that does that it. mean you didn't beat the Black Knight? No, uh, I right. had to run away. Yeah, yeah, I I beat him because my Ike was was buffed. really strong. Yeah. yeah, no, I he Ike died in one hit. The Black Knight, no matter what, in that I had to just run away. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, my I I used Ike a lot. Like he was, like mm -hmm. I said, along with the um my triple paladin team, he was one of my frontline fighters. All right, James. I, I'm. Any? Do you have any other notes? I've said most of what I need to say. I believe. Uh, yeah. Just um, one note on the visuals. Actually, we don't usually talk too much about this because we're like Neanderthals when it comes to talking <laughs> about graphics. But to be honest, I much prefer talking about gameplay. Um, I think that the battle animations in this game suck <laughs> com compared to the the Game Boy Advance Fire Emblem titles, which all have fucking fantastic snappy stylish battle animations this game is their first for 4a into 3d you can really notice the difference like i looked at footage from awakening on the 3ds they actually went back to 2d character sprites in battle mm. and then the battles are 3d models again but uh i kind of you know back that decision i think that the 3d models in this game are pretty bland um the couple of cg cutscenes look okay by comparison 
Um, and there's most of the 2D art character art I like. There are some that are noticeably worse than others, but some are really good. But yeah, the, the battle animations, they hurt. I turned them off immediately, not because of the speed, which I would have later, but because visually really boring. I guess the my point about the, the visual thing I'd bring up is the UI. Um, I actually it's think It's actually that, good, right? Well, it's really it's, good. It's basically the best it can possibly be for a controller. Like I was yeah. I was impressed with how good it was for a controller. I still think a game like this on mouse and keyboard would work like just a million times better. It's just a game like this is better suited for being able to rapidly click between units. But I don't know how you could possibly do it better on a controller. There's lots of clarity in what's happening. It lets you rewind so you can click on a unit, move them next to a unit, press attack and still rewind. Like it, it doesn't commit you to an action until you actually perform the action, which I was very appreciative of. Um, early on when you're trying to learn these games, having that being punished in that way would have been really rough. Yeah, fantastic UI, really good UI, better than Gorky Seventeen for sure. Even though that's a that's a point and click one, better than Panzer General. I, uh, I, I was I was pretty impressed. Yeah, and like I'd say the best feature is one that you know I think like Elden Ring has this feature and it's great. Um, is that you can press a button on the UI, and then whatever you hover over in your inventory or in the stats page, it'll show a pop up. Yeah. yeah, it gives you an info tutorial telling you exactly what it is and what it does. Like, that alone just made, you know, learning what all the stats did and that kind of thing just so much easier. Um, you could hover over weapons for big detailed descriptions. And because all of the, like, the stats and all that kind of thing were in these, like, boxes, the, the UI wasn't cluttered with, like, box pages of stats everywhere unless you wanted it. So they managed to have a really simple UI that is very informative, um, and I liked a lot. Oh, and we can't affect... I, I can't believe we forgot this. There's one more thing that is really important for the strategy of this game, and that is, of course, biorhythm. Bio <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> so, so there's this thing in this game. I've got no idea why it's here. Every unit has a biorhythm, which is like a thing that goes up and down. When they're on the bottom of their biorhythm, they're a less effective unit, and when they're on the top of their biorhythm, they're a more effective unit. What's more, there are skills related to biorhythm. There are skills that double the effective biorhythm and half the effective biorhythm. James, why is this here? What it's what what is this? Obviously the intention of the system is to make you use different units depending on their biorhythm, but like <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't work that way in practice. Like even your strong, like your strongest units at their worst perform better than like your bad units at their best anyway. And like the effects of biorhythm are like plus minus twenty percent accuracy. So like sometimes you'll just miss a heap of attacks, and it's really annoying. Like I never changed my strategy based on the biorhythm. <laughs> I just got annoyed by it constantly. The funniest uh, thing is, like, do they actually expect players to open up their their character menu, observe that biorhythm, and have expect that to tangibly affect their decision making? Because that is insane. Like that is insane that developers would think anyone would do that. Maybe it matters more on like the highest difficulty, like the secret difficulty that unlocks after you beat the game on hard. 
but I just do not understand why it's here. It's so useless. It, you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of like the stamina bar from System Shock 1. It's like, yeah. what is the purpose what of this, this thing? Like, it would just be better to say that, like, you can use this unit for three battles and then they need to rest for two. Yeah. Yep. Like, force you put to that diversify on their, yeah, your force, yeah. yeah, that would be better. Yeah, it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty, well, with, with that important discussion point out of the way, I believe it's time to move on to final impressions. Um, I actually have oh. one very final point. I swear it's just a quick one. There you go. Um, Fuck the fact that you can only have five support conversations per character. It is the worst part of this game, for bar none. Like, I didn't eat, like, the other games aren't like this at all. You can have all the conversations you want, but the moment you've had your fifth conversation on a character, you know, they never talk again for the rest of the game. Oh, uh, I I'm going to be honest, I didn't even notice this was a thing. Maybe because so many of my characters were dead that I missed out on a lot of these conversations. Yeah, because I got Mia and Reese to support B, and I was like, where the fuck is this A-rank conversation? And it's because I had Reese talk with Mist and Titania a bunch, so now Mia's locked out of the A-rank. Ah, so if you diversify your conversations, you can't reach it's actually It's actually worse. <laughs> yeah, how terrible is that? You have to, and you it have means to choose that, your relationships to develop. That's so funny. Yeah, and it means that the characters you get near the start you know, they have their conversations quickly, and then near the end of the game, they're just silent, which is like, <laughs> this is not how I want this to be. Like, luckily with, like, Titania and Soren, they are present in the story a lot, so they don't just stop talking entirely. But, <laughs> like, Reese, for example, and Mist, and, you know, everyone just shut up, and the characterization and the growing attached to your characters is the best part of the game, so... You know, this decision just limits how enjoyable the whole game is, basically, to me. Um, so I fucking hate this inclusion. I think it's, like, just dumb. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Like, I, yeah. I, and if they were going to do it, they should have said it explicitly at the start of the game, that you have, like, a limited... No, no, when you choose support conversations, there is a big number... At the bottom right of the screen that says conversations left and the number of how many they can have still. Wow. I, okay, yeah, I, I didn't. Seriously, yeah, this it, whole thing went straight over my head. Me too. Because, like, I think the fact that the concept is so bad is that I didn't even think that that's what that number meant. I probably I thought it meant had something to do with, like, the number of conversations they had with a specific character or something. I, yeah. I probably got, because I do not remember seeing that. Yeah, so no, the UI does show it, but <laughs> it's so bad that I thought the UI was lying to me. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's all. You can you can give your final impressions now. Oh, you're flipping it back on me. I have to go yeah. first. Okay. Alrighty. So Fire Emblem Path of Radiance. If I had to say whether I recommended this or not, I would say no, I don't recommend. But I want to catch that... Um, there's a lot I like about this game. I think that the story structure is actually pretty damn solid until the end. I think a lot of the character interactions you have are pretty interesting, and I like the way that you have a lot of this kind of side side content with, with these little interactions that basically enhance your attachment to the characters and the tactics screen. I think that 
you have the basis for a good tactics game here, but it is devastated by the implementation that led me to pursue a fairly boring strategy. And the fact that the story collapses in on itself towards the end is a huge problem as well. So all that's to say that overall, I don't think this game is worth 30 hours of your time. Now, that being said, I am interested in playing more Fire Emblem. Like, I, I don't think that this formula that they've developed is fundamentally flawed. And I'm sure, I'm, I'm actually certain that there is a Fire Emblem game in the series that I could probably play and enjoy and recommend. But this is not that. The tactics are too simple. The story ended up not being as good as I hoped. And while I did like a lot of the characters' interactions, they were still pretty simple. So all of these things together cannot add up to a game that I can in good faith recommend. But I'm intrigued. I want to try some more of these games. And I'm sure there's one that, that's more in line in what I want to play. So yeah, unfortunately, this game just doesn't add up to an overall great experience, even if I don't hate it. And I, I'm sorry I can't be more positive than that. But there's just too much about this game that, that clashed with, uh, with my enjoyment. So for me, it's kind of interesting. I would say for the first... 18 hours of this game I was loving it to bits like I you know sometimes when we play a game I'll drag my feet a bit and I'll play a lot of the game near the end with this one I felt like I played more than half of it in like the first two days just you know I was like not talking to other people I was just in my room playing this game non-stop I really enjoyed it at the start um for the most of the first part of the game I really, really love the formula of having all of these RPG characters with their random level ups, you know, that are basically infinite slot machines that don't cost you money, um, and being able to character customize them to pick the ones I like the best. Like I picked Mia, and she ended up being really powerful at a massive dodge tank until she fell off near the end of the game. Um, I liked, you know, a bunch of the character stories. I really enjoyed the structure. I liked the narrative. I liked that the characters had this level of self-awareness that um, RPG characters often lack. Um, I like that the story made a lot of efforts to try to explain things that sometimes wouldn't make sense, particularly with like Ike running the mercenary company. I liked the point of view. I liked the overarching structure. I think that once, you know, my initial love of the game um, had passed its peak. The repetitive nature of the battles did start to wear on me quite a bit, and you know the end of the story really isn't as strong as the first two thirds. I think there are some big problems with it. However, like on the whole, you know most of my time in this game I really enjoyed, but it definitely fell off a cliff near the end. And the last like four missions, I was really forcing myself to keep playing so my experience with the game was very uneven it went from loving it to bits to it being a struggle to finish so i on the whole would probably recommend it but i would say that like near the end if you stop having fun you know it's a good time to just stop playing like there's nothing at the end of the game unless you like and you know some people are going to really need that closure but the end is definitely not as fun as the start so you know, with that in mind, I can recommend it. I think that it's a mostly good experience if you are the kind of player that likes maximizing XP. If you just care about the tactics, I would steer clear of this one because 
it's the RPG elements and the characters that are going to sell you on this game and the music, not in-depth tactical gameplay. On the whole, I'd recommend Path of Radiance. So the other thing to keep in mind is I do think that my approach to this game was kind of flawed in the beginning as well. And I think that if I were to play another Fire Emblem game, now that I understand the nature of the game a bit better, I would probably approach it differently and enjoy it more. So the first thing I would do, and I mean this with complete seriousness, is stop trying to Iron Man it even remotely. <laughs> I think that, the, the honestly, if, yeah. if this is the structure I'm going to have, I think reloading after every single character death is probably the more enjoyable way to play. The new games just let you choose whether you want to play on Iron Man or not. Like, they just disable the yeah, permanent that, death. That just seems like, yeah. to me, the more fun way to play because it lets you take more risks. Right, it lets you vary your strategical approach and you don't get punished with losing out on story story beats and story interactions if a character dies. I think that would be more fun. The other thing I would do is that I would view each battle less as a tactics scenario, scenario to win and more as an environment to explore. And while that can yeah. be a bit tedious, like with the opening of the chest, that, that was the other reason I was like, I, I just want to keep, keep going. I think that trying to view them as puzzles to like recruit new people, understand the interactions, get the right person to talk to the right you know, person, add them to your party. I think if that is your approach from the beginning, you'll probably get more enjoyment out of it either. So I am, like I said, James, I'm confident if we find the correct Fire Emblem game, the one with the most interesting gameplay, and if I change my approach to be don't worry about Iron Man anymore and approach these scenarios more in a more exploratory way, I think all those things combined would there must be a Fire Emblem game out there for me somewhere. I mean, there's so many in the series. There must be one that would appeal to me. Well, we'll just it'll be a while before I pick one again. I, I really want to go back and do one of the Game well, Boy titles now just because you know. Going through the animations the other day. Like, Play, playing this has made me want to do Final Fantasy Tactics. Because after doing some reading, everyone's like, yeah, Fire Emblem isn't as deep as Final Fantasy Tactics gameplay-wise, but it's okay. And I'm like, man, I kind of just want to play FFT now. It, it just seems like the logical next step uh, to have a deeper tactical sort of situation. Well, you could play um, Tactics Ogres Getting Remastered Again, which is written by Matsuno, who did Vagrant Story. Yeah, and a friend recommended Triangle Strategy as a as like a Fire Emblem-ish tactics game that has less RPG elements, so it's got more of a focus on the tactics. So there are definitely choices out there. It's just these games are mm. all so bloody long. Hey, James. Uh, I like this episode, <laughs> Well, that seems like a good time to sum it up. Thank you so much, everyone, for taking your time to be with us here today, listening to us talk about Fire Emblem. Um, we are the Retrospectors Podcast. My name is Patrick Arthur, and my co-host was James Turlings. You can find all of our content on our website, which is rspodcast.net. It's got links to all of our social media. It's got all of our episodes we've published, as well as a bunch of articles that James and I have written on games old and new. Most importantly, it's got a link to our Discord server. Our Discord server is where we do most of our community interaction. We talk about games, we take recommendations from the community, and we would love if you've enjoyed the show, if you have a recommendation, if you have a counter opinion on Fire Emblem, please do drop by and let us know what you think. So James, that about sums it up, and I believe it's my turn to pick a game. Yeah, it is actually. What have you got in store for us? Uh, I have selected a game that looked very intriguing, and 
this is in a genre that I'm normally not a big fan of. It's a point-and-click adventure game, and it's called Blade Runner. So I love the Blade Runner movies. The original one, I think, is a beautiful movie to sink into. Its environment and world design is fantastic. And I genuinely think the sequel is just as good, and in some ways it's even better. Like, they're, they're wonderful films, a wonderful cyberpunk, slow dream fever dream to sink into enjoy i love them to pieces and normally if you said there's a point and click adventure game based on them i'd be like whatever i don't care but there are several elements of this as a point and click adventure game that seem different from the typical one it seems like instead of the combining items together puzzles it's genuine investigations and there's this element of randomization because the replicants in the game world are randomized every single time you play through. So it's not even like they're set puzzles. You kind of have a genuinely different experience every time. So it's a bit of a change of pace, but I think this might be a point and click adventure game I can enjoy. And I really hope it is one I can enjoy because I definitely love the world building already at the very least. Yeah, I've never actually watched the film. I am... Um... Um, I don't know, something about sci-fi never really clicked with me, to be honest. Yeah, it, it's a it's a slow burn. Um, in some ways, the first Blade Runner is straight up a boring film. I mean, I know people love the film, so I'll probably just watch it yeah, like, it, before we record the episode. I, I would say it's almost compulsory yeah. viewing, so you better watch it. <laughs> and if you enjoy it, you can watch the sequel as yeah, well, I heard which that's is good. astoundingly yeah. good. I mean, the, the Dune movie, good, when we yeah. went and saw that, that was good, I thought. Yeah, yeah, Villa, Villeneuve, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, but he did, he does sci-fi extremely well, and he does the original world yeah. justice. So yeah, I'm I'm keen as to, to try this game, and I hope it does something interesting with the point-and-click formula. Mm-hmm. Okay, so on that uh, enthusiastic note from James, that's all we have time for. Thank <laughs> you again for joining us, and we'll see you in a fortnight for Blade Runner. See you guys. <laughs>